0: We're continuing our catechism study today, and we're at question number 86. Last week, we came to a new section with question 85, and it introduces us to that new section that begins with 85 and goes all the way to question 107 at the end. And that was a question that that tells us what we have to do to escape God's wrath and curse. I reminded you that in question 39, the Catechism begins to speak about our duty to God as it is summarized in the scripture. And then from question 40 to 84, it speaks about our moral obligations to God as human beings, um, our duty as those who are made in His image. So that section concluded with the hard reality that we all fail to keep the moral law of God and that even the least sin calls for God's wrath and curse and eventually brings us to hell. But in his great mercy, God has provided a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of God who dwelt with God the Father from all eternity but who came for this purpose, to save his people from their sins. To do that, he had to take a true human body and soul, and then he had to die on the cross to atone for our sins. And then he he did that for all that the Father gave him, and he bore God's wrath and curse in the place of all that he came to save. And because Jesus did that, we now have not only the moral duty that belongs to us because we're human beings that we had from the beginning. We were moral creatures that should obey God. But now we have a new duty, and that is to embrace God's salvation, to come to Jesus Christ and hear him and receive him and turn from our own way to follow him and to trust in him for our salvation. If God has provided for our salvation through his son when it is our then it is our duty to embrace this salvation it is immoral not to so the moral law that we have by virtue of our creation that's what's talked about from question 39 to question 84 and we come short in that but the the law of the gospel that we need to believe on the lord jesus christ that's what we have in this section we're looking at now now that there is a way of salvation, what are we supposed to do with that? What is our obligation with that? Is to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to continue in the means of grace diligently. So let's confess together the truth that summarized in question 85. This was last week. Question 85, what doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us, faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. That's what we're all obligated to do as sinners if we wish to be saved. And really, it's an obligation everyone has to hear the gospel that we should, we should repent and believe and, and continue in the great means of grace. It summarizes the whole rest of the catechism. And today, we're going to look at the first part of that, question 85, which deals with faith, okay? He requires faith in Jesus Christ, so that's what we're looking at today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at question 87, which deals with repentance, okay? With repentance unto life, as it says in question 85. And then the week after, at question 88, which deals with the means of grace. And then is that is that the end of the catechism? You know, one question for each of those. Faith, repentance, the means of grace. <laughs> no, the means of grace are then spelled out for all the way to question 107. Now, does that seem odd? I mean, faith and repentance are given one question each, and the means of grace are given about 20 questions. So... Does that? What does that mean? Uh, does does this mean that it's more that, that the means of grace are more important? Well, this should not be taken to suggest that the means of grace are more important than faith and repentance, because the means of grace are what work faith and repentance into us, as it were. One reason that they are given more space is because faith and repentance are simply are are, are simply means. Or or the means of grace are more complex than faith and repentance. Faith and repentance are more simple things. The means of grace have things that can be, that are distorted and misunderstood, and so we have to learn like a lot about the sacraments, who they're given to, how they're to be given, what they mean. There's just a lot, it's a lot more complexity to it. But another reason is because there actually is much more said about faith and repentance. In fact, the whole first part of the catechism teaches us what we're to believe, faith, the content of our faith, about God. It right? tells us who God is, it talks about the Trinity, it talks about the, um, what He's done for us in our salvation, how He didn't leave us all to perish, how He how fell and how He didn't leave us all to perish in our sin. And it goes into justification, adoption, sanctification, the, the resurrection, the hope that we have of eternal life. It goes into all these things that we're to believe so that's faith. And then the catechism also has a whole lot to say about repentance. When we think about that, the Ten Commandments, why were they given? Were they given to us because we're obedient? No, they were given because we're sinners. And the commandments show us how we should live instead of how we do live, calling us to repentance, to, to turn from our sin and to obey God. So you have uh, really faith and repentance and all of that. And then the means of grace, what God uses is, to develop that faith, to develop that repentance, word, sacraments, and prayer. That's how God works in us, how he brings faith and repentance to us, as it were. So coming then to question 86, our question today, all we're told with question 86 is what saving faith is, not the content of all that we're to believe about Christ and his saving work, just that we are to trust in Him and rest in Him. So let's confess question 86, today's question together. Question 86, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Him for salvation as He is offered to us in the Gospel. For our scripture reading related to this subject, I have chosen Acts thirteen thirteen through 52. Now, it's not a passage that's often given a whole lot of attention. You probably say, oh, yeah, Acts 13. It's it's probably not like that. Um, Maybe you did that with Acts 2 last week, but Acts 13 is not not necessarily well known. But I think this passage has some very important information about our subject that we're looking at. As you know, Paul went all over the place preaching the gospel. Jesus did the same thing. In almost every city that he went to, we're told that he first went to the synagogue and he preached the gospel there to the Jews. But we're not ordinarily given much of the content of what he preached, just that he did it. We're just told that he did it. Oh, what did Paul say? Well, here we have a fairly full example of the content of what he preached. Now, if we were told this in every time that he went to a different place, the book of Acts would be a much longer book, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> there's a lot of places he goes. But we're just, just told that he did it. Here we're shown this is the kind of thing that Paul preached as he went around. Same thing we have with the Sermon on the Mount with our Lord Jesus. What did he preach when he went around all these places and preached? As He went to many villages all over the place and preached. What did he say? Well, look at the Sermon on the Mount. We're given an example of a pretty, pretty full example of his preaching um, so here we have a fairly detailed account of Paul. Um, we can be sure that he would have used these arguments many times because they were the very things that the Jews needed to hear and believe. And you have these arguments even with you know people like Peter using similar quoting from Psalm two or Psalm sixteen or Psalm one ten, different different passages like that that, that Paul uses. So so let's take a look then at what when Paul went around preaching faith, you know, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent and believe what what was he what was he saying? Let's let's look at this passage. Let's listen as I read it to you. It's Acts 13 and I'm going to begin in verse 13. It's a long chapter, but I will read all the way to verse 52. So Acts 13, verse 13 is where we begin. This is the word of God. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said men of Israel and you who fear God listen the god of this people Israel the god of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it now for a time of about 40 years he put up with their ways in the wilderness and when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan he distributed their land to them by allotment after that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet and afterward they asked for a king so God gave them Samuel the son I mean Saul the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years and when he had removed him he raised up for them David as king to whom also he gave testimony and said I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. And as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins and that and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one was to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you rejected and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There we end the reading of God's holy word. So three things that we're going to look at that related to the catechism that we see in this passage that I just read. First, that you must have faith in Jesus Christ if you would be saved from God's wrath and curse. Second, that faith involves receiving and resting upon Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel. And third, that faith is an act of God's free grace. It is a gift of God. So let's look at each of these in order. First, understand that you must have faith in Jesus Christ if you would be saved from God's wrath and curse. Faith is indispensable to salvation. Our text clearly shows the indispensability of faith. It's something you can't not have and be saved. In verse 38 through 39, Paul shows that Christ not works justify a person. It says there, verse 38, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, Jesus, of course, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So Paul here presents the utter impossibility of justification by the law of Moses. This could be something as justification is the is the declaration by a judge that you are righteous. Saying that you are righteous. Now, this could be something as simple as paying a parking ticket and having that payment accepted for your parking infraction. You're justified in a way then. In other words, there's nothing in the law that's standing out against you. And before the parking ticket is paid, then there's something standing against you. Once it's paid, then everything is brought to justice, to equilibrium, so to speak. But of course, Paul is talking about much more, a much greater kind of justification here. He's talking about justification of a sinner in the eyes of God, in the sight of God. He is talking about God declaring a sinful human being who has many infractions, many sins, uh, to be righteous before God's holy eyes, even though we're not righteous. How could God justify us? Like, what has to be done? He's talking about the Lord saying that a sinner is acceptable to him. The law of Moses, let's think about that. The law of Moses had no power in itself to justify anyone. Think about it a person could carry out all the ceremonies to a T. And still there was no power there to justify the offering of the blood of bulls and goats was simply not able to take away our sin. It wasn't sufficient. This was demonstrated by the fact that they were offered over and over again to show that they didn't actually do it. They were just representing something that did or would actually do it. God was showing by this that these offerings were only pictures pointing to the greater offering that he would provide the one that he had promised in the mount of the Lord, it would be provided to take away sin. So clearly the way of justification was not yet manifested when the law of Moses was given. There is a sense in which the people were not justified at that time. I say a sense because all those who had faith in God's promised provision were righteous on account of the promised provision. But they were not justified in the sense that The necessary offering had not yet been made, not until Jesus came. We could say that in that sense, the whole church had not yet been justified because we were waiting for Jesus to come and make the offering that was required for him to act, for God to act on our behalf. And in theory, if he had not acted, then we could never be saved. Jesus actually had to come and do what he did in history. It wasn't just a metaphysical thing or something. There's something that was in theory out there. It was something he actually had to come here and actually die on the cross. Now, in the same way that no one could be justified by the law of Moses, so it is impossible for anyone to be justified in any other way whatsoever. You may do all sorts of wonderful things for God, wonderful works. Uh, Humanly speaking, you may make all sorts of costly sacrifices and service to God, but all your works are tainted by sin. They don't, they don't pass muster. They, none, none can pay the price of your sin. There are improper motives involved and improper actions in everything that you do. So in fact, the more you do, the more you actually add condemnation in that regard if you're seeking to be justified by your works. What's more, There is no payment that you can make that is sufficient to atone for your sins. What sacrifice are you going to make? To pretend that there is such a payment is actually to mock God. It's greatly insulting. You see, God is jealous for his holy name. He despises sinners who presume to come to him on the basis of their own righteousness and goodness. That's offensive to God. You can't come to him on the basis of your own goodness those who do that are, are like little. They're they're not like they're not like little children that come bringing uh, something they made for their parents and you know wasn't really very well done. But the, the parents cherish it because their child did it for them out of love and they meant well. Like God receives things like that from us, but if we're talking about being justified, no, that's not acceptable. You see, they're more. The, the people who try to be justified by their works, they're more like this. They're more like a person who murders the king's family and then burns down the king's house and who tries to cast him off of his throne through a, a conspiracy and then expects the king to justify him because he went and cut the king's grass for him. You know, oh uh, well, king, you, you should be happy with me because I cut your grass. And the king says... You killed my family, you burned down my house, and you tried to cast me off of the throne through conspiracy. And you want me to be happy with you because you cut my grass? It's an insult. Like, it doesn't even begin to take take care of what needs to... It's a mockery of God that is rooted in culpable blindness. When any living man or woman supposes that he or she can impress God with our own works or atone for sin with our own works. And I might add to that that the job he did on the yard wasn't very good. wasn't very well done anyway. <laughs> Is there? So if there's no way to be justified by the law of Moses, you should certainly not then suppose that there's some other great thing that you could do that would justify you. I mean, the law of Moses should do should do more than what you could do, something that you come up with. To even try to do so is only to make your guilt worse, because, again, it's like what I illustrated a moment ago. So Paul shows that it is only by believing in Christ that you can be justified. In other words, you must transfer your dependence off of whatever you are doing or whatever you might be able to do and put it exclusively on Jesus Christ. That's what is necessary. Faith has to go in the right place. That way, instead of relying on your own works and mocking God by relying on your own works, you bring honor to Him because you trust in the offering of His Holy Son as the only provision that will satisfy for sin. You can surely see how insulting it is to God for you to trust in the law of Moses or in your own works for justification when he has provided Christ for this purpose. So, you know, you're going you're gonna to mow the grass or something to justify you when God has sent his son to die on the cross. Like, this is, this is insulting that you would even think of when God has done what he has done, that you would think there's something else that you could do when God has done that. He has made this great sacrifice of his son and you're offering your feeble works to him instead? That's insulting. You're acting as if your own works are sufficient to achieve what only the Son of God could achieve. You're acting like God delivered his Son to be crucified when it wasn't at all necessary. You could have fixed everything yourself. Why would he send his Son? In verses 40-41, through Paul tells his hearers that they will surely perish. If they do not accept God's provision that He has given them in Jesus Christ for justification, Acts thirteen verse forty. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers! Okay, despising that not, not looking to Christ who is provided. You're despising it. Behold, you despisers! Marvel and perish. Okay, they look at Christ and maybe they're impressed. Maybe they see that he rose from the dead. Maybe they see that he did wonderful works. But they don't trust in him. Marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So Paul makes it plain that if you do not believe, you will perish. It doesn't matter what connections you may have with God. You may be circumcised. You might be a Pharisee, all the rest. Or today you might be baptized, be a missionary, and someone who has done lots and lots of good, things that have helped other people. You may even marvel that Jesus was raised from the dead, marvel at his life that he lived, marvel at the miracles that he did. But if you do not trust him, if you do not rely on him, for what he was sent to do, okay, at- making atonement for sinners and saving sinners, Paul says you will utterly perish. You can have great thoughts about Jesus, but if you don't rely upon him for salvation, you're disconnected from that salvation. My brothers and sisters, no one can deny God's way of salvation and live. No one can ignore God's way of salvation and live. This pertains to you who hear the gospel just the same as it pertained to the Jews to whom Paul speaks in our text. If you reject God's provision in Christ, you too will surely perish. You can't ignore this provision. In the remainder of the chapter, Luke shows the radical antithesis between those who believe and those who do not believe. On the one hand, you have the Gentiles who are drawn to the gospel and they beg to hear more. Okay, that is is always the way it is when you trust what Jesus has done and what Jesus has done. You're drawn to it. You're drawn to God's word and you want to learn more about him. I remember when I first trusted in Christ, digging in the scriptures you know, looking to understand more, you continue in God's word. Remember what we saw last week in in Acts chapter 2, that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in in fellowship. We're told in verse 43 of our text that many Jews also joined themselves to Paul and Barnabas and were persuaded to continue in the grace of God. In verse 48, it says that many of them believed, so the Jews didn't all re- some of the Jews received it too. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. But in contrast to Jews and Gentiles that believed and wanted to hear more of the word, there are others who are of a very different mind. Instead of rejoicing, they are stirred up with envy and they start to contradict and blaspheme. To them, the message of the gospel isn't an offense. They are angered by it because it tells them that the Son of God had to die to save sinners and that their own works aren't good enough. What do you mean our works aren't good enough? You know, I, I've, I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I've done all these things from my youth up. I've never violated the commandments. What are you talking about that my works aren't good enough? They do not want to acknowledge their need of salvation. So the gospel is offensive to them. The gospel always causes this kind of division. Now, people may not be openly hostile to it, but they're not neutral. Like, you are hostile, really, to the gospel if you don't accept it. You're hostile. You either believe it or you reject it. You believe it and are saved or you reject it and you perish. And so the first thing, then, that I want you to understand from this passage is that you must have faith in Jesus Christ if you would be saved. If you do not, you will perish. Secondly, understand what faith is, that faith in Jesus Christ involves receiving and resting upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. In Acts 13, 16-39, Paul explained how Christ is offered in the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It is used to refer to the news about what God has done to save his people. There's a report to give. Something was done that needs to be reported, declared, a story to tell what God has done to save his people. The story must be told to those who would be saved and they must understand the story. It is the story about how God provided salvation for his people according to his promise. The promise is now extended to all who believe. In verse 39, after telling the story, Paul said, By him, everyone who believes is justified. The promise is extended to everyone, both Jew and Gentile. Well, what is the news that Paul tells them? Well, let's look back. Paul explains how God was faithful to keep his promises to Israel. He gives a brief account of how the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt and into their own land. Then he speaks. They were so familiar with these things. Then he speaks about the promise to David to raise up a savior from his seed. Promise that the Jewish hearers cherished. They were looking for the son of David that would come. He reminds them of how John the Baptist came forth, proclaiming that Jesus was a savior whose sandals he was not worthy to loosen. Then Paul declares to them that Jesus is himself the fulfillment of the promise. So he lays out the story of God's faithfulness to Israel to bring about the son that he promised to save them. Then he goes on to explain how their leaders fulfilled prophecy by crucifying Jesus. Yet how God raised him up, he tells them that this is God's keeping of his promise to save them. Look at verse 32. In that verse, Paul says, and we declare to you glad tidings. okay, the gospel, the news that that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. This leads, all of this leads, telling the story, then leads to Paul's call to believe what God has done in order that they might receive forgiveness of sin and be justified. Understand that faith is believing this account about how God fulfilled his promise to raise up a savior. You believe the account. It's not a mere believing of the historical facts. A mere assent to the facts, a mere belief that these things happen. It's not good enough. The devil knows that all this stuff happened. He saw Jesus raised from the dead. He saw Jesus ascend up into the heaven at the right hand of God. You can believe all that happened, but that's not saving faith. Saving faith is receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. Let's look at that. What is that offered as He's offered in the Gospel? It means you must first want the salvation that is offered. If you feel that you do not need to be saved from sin, or if you don't want to be reconciled with God because you want to continue to live in your own way then you will not come to Christ for the salvation that God offers through Him. You won't bother. You can't come come to Him to be saved from something else, though. You can't come to Jesus to be saved from trouble in the world or from sickness or from fear or from loneliness or whatever it is that you might want. You can't come to Him for that, nor can you simply come to be saved from hell. But if you don't have a desire to be reconciled to God, that you might serve him. In other words, I just don't want to get punished like that, but I want to keep on living for myself. I don't want to live unto God. No, you didn't come to Christ as he's offered in the gospel in that case. If you just want to avoid hell, but you don't want to serve God, you don't come to Christ for what he came to accomplish in salvation. You do not come to him for the salvation he offers. In other words, he will not be your savior until you... Come to be restored to God. That's how he's the Savior. He restores sinners. Secondly, receiving and resting upon Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel means that you trust in him and rely upon him. You rely upon him alone for salvation. You look to him as the only provision for salvation and you rest in what he has done. You do not rest in what you have done, what anybody else has done, but in what he has done and in him as God's provision. That's what it means to receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. If you do that, you will be justified. But what is it about this faith? What makes this faith so powerful that it's able to save sinners? Faith is powerful to save Because it transfers your dependency to Christ and he is mighty to save. You see, it's not really faith that's that powerful, but it's what faith relies on, namely Christ. If you have very strong faith in thin ice and you rest your weight upon that ice, your faith will not support you no matter how great your faith is. You say, oh, I'm absolutely, totally confident that that ice is going to hold me up. I know that it will hold me. I'm, I, it, I'm sure it will hold me. I believe, I totally believe that right ice is going to hold me up. And then you go step on it. And that thin ice is going to break. Your faith was so strong. But that didn't help you because your faith was not in the right thing. But if you step onto some ice that is thick, it doesn't matter whether your faith is very strong or not. What matters is that that ice is going to be able to hold you up. You look at it and you say, Oh, I don't know about this, and kinda, of, and you you start walking out and you're kind of carefully, gently stepping along, and you go and you step on it. The thick ice. I don't have any problem holding you up. Your faith is weak. That doesn't matter. Once you rest your weight on it, you'll be upheld. When you trust in Christ, there's a transference of what you're standing on. You move from what you have come to realize cannot possibly support you. Your own merit, the law of Moses, your good deeds, your family connections, your sincere heart. I've got a good heart. Yeah, none, none of that. Whatever it might be. And you rest upon Christ. Christ who can support you. So you go from stuff that can support you, transfer from that to what can support you. Jesus Christ crucified. Then you are secure. You cannot sink into God's wrath because Christ is like the ice that cannot be broken. He is able to hold you up. Saving faith is mighty to save because it connects you To Jesus Christ, God's promised provision for salvation, and he is mighty to save. This receiving and resting upon him brings glory to God. It brings glory to God because you now believe and testify that God is a holy and righteous God. You testify that he cannot look favorably upon sinners until an acceptable substitute has been offered for their sins. And you testify that the only acceptable offering is Jesus Christ. That he is the one who is able to reconcile us to God. That brings glory to God because it shows how holy he is and how righteous he is. It also brings glory to him because it shows how gracious he is. That he is willing to send his only son to do this for sinners. I mean, the very reason that you need Christ to come and die on the cross is because you're such a sinner. And God is so gracious that even for somebody like you that's such a sinner, he's willing to do this. He's willing to accept that offering also in his grace on your behalf. When you contributed nothing of your own, why would he accept that? Because he's gracious. And so you see that God is honored as just and the justifier of sinners who believe in Jesus. Without Jesus, for God to justify sinners would bring dishonor upon him. He would be declaring a lie he would be saying that we had met the requirements of righteousness before him when we had not even come close. Or he would be saying, as many dream of today, that the requirements of righteousness don't matter to him. That would be even worse. God doesn't care whether you meet the requirements of righteousness or not. He's, he's, he's a big guy. He can overlook it. right? No. No. When you come to Christ, God has perfectly met all the requirements of righteousness. They had to be met Through the promised Savior, you have the Savior simply by faith, just by trusting Him. So you see then from our text, these two things. First, that you must have faith in Jesus Christ if you would be saved from God's wrath and curse. Faith is indispensable to salvation. Second, that faith in Jesus Christ involves receiving and resting upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered in the gospel. And now thirdly, understand that saving faith is the gift of God. It is a saving grace. This is brought out very clearly in verse 48. It says, Acts 13, 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who do you suppose appointed them? <laughs> it was God, of course. The Gentiles here, though, they were delighted to hear that the gospel was for them also. But what I want you to see in this verse is who it was that believed. It was those who had been appointed to eternal life. What does that mean? It means that God had previously chosen them to salvation. The Bible calls predestination or election. He had predestined them to hear the gospel, and not only to hear it, but also to believe it. That's why they believed. They had been chosen beforehand. Those appointed were the ones who did believe. There was no one that was not appointed who came, who believed. In other words, there, there weren't people that God didn't appoint that went ahead and believed anyway. No, only It says those that were appointed are the ones that believed. The reason is because such a person who was not appointed would not come. Jesus said, no one will come to me unless the father draws him. He's very plain about that. Had to be appointed to salvation. The human heart is desperately wicked and it will not come to Jesus to be saved, to be justified by faith. Here are two reasons the sinners won't come on their own. A sinner won't come unless God draws them. First, sinner will not come because he is too proud. He refuses to admit that he needs to be saved or at least that he cannot be saved except by Jesus. He doesn't want to go there because of his pride. Second, he will not come because he is too rebellious. He doesn't want to serve God anyway. He delights in his supposed freedom to do as he pleases. He thinks that he would give up too much if he were to serve God. You know, I can't eat the forbidden fruit then. I can't eat the stuff that God forbids. I don't want that. I want, I want to be free. Like a child, you know, that's content to bang away on the, the, the keyboard without ever learning to really play music. I want to be free. I don't want to have the rules of music. I don't want to have things that I have to learn about that. I just want to just, just do whatever I want. Real freedom comes when you learn the skills and you can play beautiful music, not when you're just banging away out of control. It is a freedom... But the one who is truly free is the one who can make beautiful music. And so you see that only those who are appointed came. No one else came because they would not. They are too proud and too rebellious. But I would add to this that everyone who was appointed did come. Okay? If God has appointed you to believe on his son, you will come To believe on his son, you can't say no, because God is going to reveal his son to you by his spirit. He's going to show you your need of Christ. And once you see your need of Christ, you can't not see it. (laughs) Once you see it, you see it. Okay, he is going to show you how Christ is able to fully meet that need. Once you see how Christ meets that need, no one else can meet. You know, there's you know, there's no other way. That's why a real Christian will never think, oh, well, people could be saved by uh, those other religions too, couldn't they? You know, yeah, Jesus is okay for me, but other people have other ways, and, you know, they have their way, I have my way. No, when you, when you understand how Jesus meets the need, no one else can do it. He's going to, and he's going to also persuade you to receive him. Okay, so this is, this is what his spirit does. He shows you your need of Christ he shows you how Christ is sufficient to meet that need. And then he shows you uh, or he persuades you to embrace it. He makes you willing to do so. It is not so much that you will be forced to come against your will, but rather that you will be made willing to come. When God does this, really what he does is he just puts your heart right about it. He changes what's wrong with you. The rebellion and the pride, he he, he fixes that. He makes you willing to do what only makes sense when the pride and rebellion isn't crowding, isn't blinding you so much. Our text says, "As many as were appointed to eternal life believed." This is why the Catechism calls faith a saving grace. It's the gift of God to His elect. It's something we have. Through grace, Paul says in Ephesians two, eight and nine, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. The faith did not come from you. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That means that if you believe you should give God the glory for it, your faith is his gift to you. It does not mean that. That faith is something that he does for you. God doesn't believe for you. He can't believe for you. You see, no, you are the one who believes. God does not believe for you. But the only reason you believe is because God opened your heart to believe. He has cleared away the corruption so that you see your need to come and you want to come and you do come. This is how he has given you to his son he has given you faith to embrace the son but now why would i tell you this why would i even why would i even bring this part up why should i tell you that faith is god's gift i mean if you're not a believer won't that give you a good excuse will it not give you a right to say that god has not appointed you so there's nothing you can do about it well we don't know who has been appointed and who has not No, it really won't give you a good excuse. Why? Well, I tell you this because God's word tells you this. And if you will receive it, it will break your pride. You don't really believe it if you use it as an excuse because you don't really believe what God says. So you can't use an excuse of something you don't believe. It doesn't make sense. But I tell you this, if you receive it, it will break your pride. This doctrine offends our pride because it shows us how completely undone we are. So undone that we won't even come to him to be saved. We won't even believe the gospel if we're left on our own. We'll never believe it. We'll never come. I hope it does offend your pride so that by God's grace, it might break down your pride so that you'll see that you really desperately do need Christ that you will see clearly that your condition is so desperate that you won't come to him unless he draws you. Not only is this doctrine able to break the pride of the hardest heart, though, it's also able to bring encouragement to the most desperate heart. If you already see your weakness, the last thing you want to hear about is the gospel that demands this. Or that demands that. That says you've got to do thus and thus and thus and thus. You want a gospel that gives to you what it demands. And that's what this gospel is. It's for the most desperate heart. I tell you that it's right here that there is such a gospel. If you're despairing over your lost condition. Despairing that you could ever be saved. I want to tell you that. God who works faith in you just cast yourself upon the Lord and he'll do it just step on the ice as it were cast yourself on Christ and it's all you don't even have to jump into his arms all you have to do is fall on him just fall upon him lean upon him just collapse before him give up say Lord You have to do it. You have to save me. I'm too weak to even stand. I fall upon you. You hold me up. And to you who already believe. Why do I tell you this? I tell you that faith is God's gift that you don't have on your own. I tell you that faith is a gift of God because I want to take away all boasting from you. Boasting has no place in a believer. As long as you think that your salvation is something that you did, even that even if that something is believing, then your faith is not yet purified. You need to see that God did it all. You owe the entirety of your salvation to him. When your faith is not purified, neither is your life purified because it's the only it's only the grateful heart that freely serves God. I would suggest that if you're finding it difficult to overcome sin in your life, ingratitude may well be at the root. You need to see that salvation is entirely God's work. He provided salvation that you could not possibly obtain apart from Jesus. And then he even worked faith in you. So not only was the salvation provided something that you could not possibly do, but believing Was also something that you could not possibly do apart from his grace. He even worked faith in you to connect you to this salvation, to Jesus for salvation. Thanks be to him for his glorious name. What what a holy and gracious God he is. To him be the glory forever and ever. For the salvation of any sinners. Any sinner including you. Continue to. To lean upon him and give him all the glory for your salvation. Yes, we to to be saved, we must come to Jesus Christ, we must receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered in the gospel. We'll only do that as God's gift of faith is given to us. So lean upon him, fall upon him. You don't have to have any strength. He has the strength to save please stand and let's pray our gracious father in heaven we praise you for the salvation that you have wrought for sinners through jesus christ it's a salvation that no one else could have wrought it was something that only you could do only christ could do and we thank you that he has done it and that now we can rest in it we can take confidence we can rest in christ Rest in him alone. We pray that we would not insult you by bringing our own works or some other thing that we are resting in. We rest only in Christ. We thank you that he is freely offered to us in the gospel and that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to fall upon you and that we would give you the glory for saving us. We know that we cannot save ourselves. We know that Jesus can save us. We pray that we would desire that and that we would look to Him. For you have said, Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. We praise you, Lord, for the work that you have done in our behalf. In Jesus' name, Amen. Receive now the blessing of our Lord. Now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.